Thanks for braving the elements and uh, being here uh, this morning. What a great song. Maybe that's new to you, uh, but I was thinking as we were singing it, what a great song for Hebrews. Jesus is better, and since he is, make my heart believe. Help me to persevere is the idea. That's the theme. That's, that's the anthem uh, of the book of Hebrews. What a perfect song. And it's a good thing that Jesus is better because the truth is this world is a mess. Our country is a mess. I would be hard-pressed to name a time of more political animosity and unrest in our nation's history. Starting right at the very top, the president. Can we agree that someone ought to take his Twitter account? The president gave his State of the Union address on Tuesday, as is normal. One side of the aisle clapped, the other side sat on their hands, but it seemed much more than usual. Their expressions of contempt, contempt, were startling. Some didn't even come. Divisions are deep and acrimonious. Accusations are flying from every quarter, leaving we, the people of these United States, scratching our heads, unsure of who or what to believe. By way of illustration, you can go to CNN and Fox News find them reporting on the same story as if the facts are polar opposites. Who, who to believe? So, so how do we define the primary problem of this country, indeed of this world? And, and, and what is the solution? It seems to me if we're going to fix anything, we have to all agree on the fundamental problem. So what is the problem? Is it, as some suggest, that people are ignorant? Is it that people are basically good and the solution to our collective problem is simply education? Or is the problem that people have had bad childhood experiences and and those dysfunctional environments have ruined otherwise healthy and good people? If that is the case, perhaps some kind of social reengineering is the appropriate solution to our collective challenge. Just change their environment, forgetting, (laughs) of course, that people are the ones who made the environment. Lift people out of their polluted environments, it is suggested they will be fine. Or, again, is poverty the problem? Is it because so many people's basic needs are not being met, they never have a chance to become productive citizens developing skills and behaviors that are good for society. If that is the case, then surely a redistribution of wealth is the solution. Bernie thought so. Only socialism has never really worked in any society. It's not in my notes, but I'm going to say it anyway. I found that those that were on the Bernie bandwagon were largely those born after 1989 and apparently could not read the history books. Socialism does not work. Is it racism, bigotry, prejudice, intolerance? Maybe it's a certain gender, and all the ladies say, amen. Or is it a certain or all religion? Again, it's not just our country. The world is in a mess. 
If the problems identified and solutions offered have not made one iota of difference as our world and our country spiral spiral out of control, ever closer to nuclear holocaust, is there a deeper common human problem? Well, this is church. (laughs) And I suppose most of you uh, know know the answer to that question. Uh, Our collective common human problem actually started way back in the Garden of Eden. Having created the heavens and the earth, on the sixth day, God created man. A man we know from our Sunday school, a man named Adam. He placed Adam in the garden, giving him the responsibility to tend or to keep the garden. We read these rather familiar words in Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and and over every creeping thing that creeps on on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Let me pause right there. We know that after God created Adam, he created Eve from a rib he had taken out uh, uh, from from Adam, and, and both are equally created in the image of God, in equal dignity and honor, equally. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and every living thing that moves on the earth. And I'm kind of excited about that because that would include snakes. Don't like them at all. It's great. Everything was good. In fact, you get to the end of each of the days of creation and God looks and says, that's good. And then he gets to the end of the six days, he looks back and says, it's very good. It's wonderful. Now, when God placed them in the garden, He told them that they could eat anything they wanted, except in the middle of the garden, He placed a certain tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You you can eat of any tree but that one. In, In fact, the day that you eat the fruit of that tree is the very day that you will die. Well, most of us know the story, sadly. Progresses In chapter 3 of Genesis, we read, Now the serpent, see? We read later, that was Satan. I think they're all satanic. Satan was... Anybody have any pet snakes here? No, I don't want to know. The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said... You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent. Now, if you go back to the narrative, you find that God actually said it to Adam, and we presume that Adam then taught his wife. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall, she embellishes just a bit, you shall not eat from it or touch it. He didn't say that. Or you shall or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, lie number one, you surely will not die. And then he continues to lie. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, lie, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was 
a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desired to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate, and she also gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. And their actions plunged this world into sinful rebellion and brokenness, such that to this day, the world, again, is a mess. In fact, our dominion over the world was also ruined. See? Snake bites. Oh, it's still here, this dominion, but it's broken. We can't rule over the world when we can't even rule ourselves. Sometime later, King David wrote in Psalm chapter 8, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, and even take the hand, just fingers, the, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him, yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. He's overwhelmed. Look at the exclamation point. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You, you put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. Does that sound familiar? It should. It's right out of Genesis chapter 1. One day, probably, uh, 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 when gazing up at the night sky, as David considered the vastness and magnificence of the universe, remembering Genesis chapter 1, he pens these particular words. He was overwhelmed that God would create all that his eyes could see and, and make little, insignificant, puny man special to rule over the works of his Fingers. But does it seem like we are ruling well over the works of God's hand when, again, we cannot even rule ourselves well? We can't, you see, because our problem, the common universal problem of humanity, is sin. So, then what is the solution to our problem? What's the solution to our... Is the problem poverty? Is it, is it our environment? I will tell you this, the solution is not to be found within because the problem is us. It's not to be found in better education or social engineering or solving the issues of poverty and prejudice. You're not going to solve problems by throwing money at it. It's a pipe dream because even the best people you know are miserable, dirty, rotten sinners. The author of Hebrews addresses this, this very problem and offers the solution in our continuing study of this great book, chapter 2, verses 5 and following. Look at it with me. For he, that is God, did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him, and the son of man that you are concerned about him? You made him a, for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and you appointed him over the works of your hands. You put all things in subjection under his feet. We just read that. We know that. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now the author of Hebrews recognizes the problem. But now we do not 
yet see all things subjected to him. We got a problem. Solution. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is a magnificent passage of hope in the midst of our worldwide universal brokenness. I've got the solution. No one will live. I've got the solution. Yes, the world's a mess. But there is a solution to our problem. The author is continuing his argument that Jesus, the new covenant, the gospel which he brought, is superior to the angels in the old covenant they brought or mediated. In doing so, this time he says Jesus is the solution to humanity's problem. You want to fix your homes? You want to fix your neighborhoods? You want to fix your workplace? You want to fix your school? There's only one way to do that. First of all, you got to say, you can't do it. Only Jesus can. The author here applies Psalm 8 to Jesus. Incredibly. No one else in the New Testament does that. It's absolutely incredible. It's amazing. Let me outline the text as we go through it, appropriately preparing for communion. The subjection of the world to come is not to angels, Because you see, the subjection of the world was supposed to be to humanity. The subjection of of the world, though, is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Great news. In keeping with the superiority of Jesus to angels, the author starts in verse 5 with, For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. Please notice the conjunction at the beginning of the sentence. For conjunctions are very important. It ties it to something that he has said previously. And the verse ends with concerning which we are speaking. So what has he been talking about as it relates to the world being in subjection? Where does he say that? Well, we actually have to go back to chapter 1, verse 13. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool, the subjection for your feet? We remember that was a quote of Psalm 110, and God the Father says to God the Son, at his exaltation, after his death and resurrection, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool, until I, all things are subject to you. Now, now remember, in chapter 1, the author is proving the superiority of Christ to angels, namely, <laughs> because he is eternal, sovereign Son of God, and angels are n- merely servants of God. And because that is true, the author then pauses in those first four verses of chapter 2 to give us a warning. Because of of who Jesus is, vast, infinitely superior, don't drift. Now in verse 5, he returns to his train of thought. For he, the Father, did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. That is the subjection of all things under Jesus' feet. He didn't subject them to angels. He did it to his Son. Do you see his train of thought? Now, why does he speak of this world to come? Lots of discussion. Let me summarize it for you. Most agree the world prior to the coming of Christ and the new covenant was indeed subject to the rule of angels. It's kind of difficult to grasp our mind around. 
For example, in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32, in the Septuagint, and we remember that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and this author likes to quote the Septuagint. In, in that verse, we read these words, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when He separated the children of men, He set the bounds of the people according to the number of the angels of God. This, the implication is that the administration of the nations had been parceled out to angelic beings. Further, in the book of Daniel, we find there was one angel over Persia, another over Greece, and Michael, uh, the archangel, was over Israel, implying again their respective territories. Further, when Paul writes of angels, he speaks of rulers and authorities almost in a hierarchical way. All of that leads to the idea held by most in New Testament times that the world was overseen by angels, okay? But in the world to come, that is the world of the gospel, since Jesus finished His work, or that's one argument, the world to come, or when He comes back, you can take your pick, it will not be subject to angels. To whom then will it be subject? Point two, the subjection of the world was supposed to be to humanity. In verse six, the author writes, but one is testified somewhere saying. It's an interesting way to quote an Old Testament passage. We know where it was. We just read it a moment ago. Did this guy not know? Did he forget? No. He is magnifying divine authorship of Scripture and diminishing the human author. In the end, it doesn't really matter who wrote it. What matters is that the Scripture ultimately came from God. He's magnifying the inspiration of Scripture. What does this passage quote? Uh, what passage does he quote? Psalm 8, again from the Septuagint. He starts with verse 4. What is man that you, God, remember him, that is, have anything to do with him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? Now, I know that some of you are familiar with the, the New Testament, and immediately you see son of man, and you go, aha, he's talking about Jesus. In, in, in Hebrew poetry, that, that's just parallel as a man and son of man. is two ways to speak of humanity. But we cannot escape the illusion or the echo one said. I like that. The echo that, 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 that in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the son of man. David, overwhelmed with this idea of divine attention, says, how in the world, literally, how in the world of all things in the universe... Can you be concerned about little, puny, insignificant man? He goes on basically to summarize Genesis 1, as we saw earlier. It is because humankind was created in the image of God. Angels, by the way, were not. Let me just give you a little sneak preview. I've already written, it's highly unusual, I've already rewritten my introduction for my sermon next week because I'm so excited I can't stand it. Yeah, hold on to your seats. Because man was created in the image of God, angels were not. You hear what I just said? That means when we die, contrary to popular opinion, we do not become angels. I'll let you, I'll let you stew about, think about that for a little bit this week. God, you made man for a little while lower than the angels. This verse is how we know. He's quoting from the Septuagint. You may have noticed when we read Psalm 8 from my Hebrew Bible, it said, a little lower than God. 
But, but that word God could be translated heavenly beings or little gods, speaking of angels. And, and, and that's why the way the Septuagint took it, which the author quotes. So, you made man for a little while lower than the angels. In this grand hierarchy, if you will, in their abilities and oversight, you made humanity lower than angels. But that is not intended to be forever. Notice, for a little while lower than the angels. Further, you crowned him with glory and honor. How did God crown us with glory and honor? Because humanity, again, is created in the image of God. And as such, you appointed man over the works of your hands, having put all things in subjection under his feet. You remember both Genesis 1 and Psalm 8, which is a quote of Genesis 1, lists those things over which man rules, that is, those things under his feet. God gave humanity dominion over his creation, the animal kingdom, for example, birds, fish, snakes, etc. But I just threw in the snakes. But in the middle of verse 8, our author sums it up for in subjecting all things to him, what? Did you, did you notice? All things. What's all things? Everything. For he left nothing, he comments, that is not subject to him, that is humanity. That is amazing. Does it feel that way? Does it? Not exactly. Because, you see, through the fall of man into sin by the first Adam, that dominion was marred. Further, it was ruined. One called it paradise lost. It was ruined such that this world is a mess. We can't rule over it well in righteousness. Again, we can't even rule over our own selves well. That's why the end of verse 8 says, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to Him. Do we? No. We've made a mess of this world. We don't rule over it well. All things are not subject to us. Think of the natural disasters out there. Can you control a tornado? Didn't think so. We, we can't even get along. Pastor Ken Hughes in his commentary on this text says this, Adam sinned, and as a consequence, his God-given dominion became twisted. Man's rule over creation has through the centuries become an ecological disaster. Regardless of where you are on, the, uh, on where we are in, this, in the planet and global warming and all that, it doesn't matter. We can all agree, ecological disaster. His reign over the animal world is superficial. The problem is he cannot rule over himself, let alone others. Chesterton, that's G.K. Chesterton was writing, he quotes him, whatever is or is not true about men, this one thing is certain, man is not what he was meant to be. That's sad. That's bad news. But I've got good news. Verse 9. Point 3. The author makes a stunning change. We're supposed to notice this. We don't see all things subjected to mankind, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Stop right there. He makes this stunning right turn, knowing that one was needed. Because of our failure, the failure of the first Adam, there was need for a second Adam. 
We don't see things rightly subjected to humanity because, frankly, we blew it. We gave it up. But we do see Jesus. Now, when was Jesus made for a little while lower than the angels? We know at his incarnation when he took on human flesh. One author suggests that no book displays both the deity and humanity uh, of Jesus Christ as clearly as in the book of Hebrews. Others point out when the author mentions Jesus alone in this book, which I think is nine times, Jesus alone without his title of Christ, he, he is often drawing attention to that humanity, especially in his suffering as he does here. But we see him. Jesus. Don't miss the next phrase. Made for a little while lower than the angels. That's incredible. We're talking about God. Second person of the Trinity. The creator of all things. We saw that in chapter 1. The creator of angels. We see him willingly made for a little while lower than his own angels, his servants. He made them. The author applies Psalm 8 to Jesus unlike no other. Since we failed, Jesus, the second Adam, did not. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. That's right out of Psalm 8. As we've seen all along, this does not mean that Jesus was not crowned with glory and honor before the incarnation. He has always eternally been the glorious Son of God. But now, due to His finished work, He was exalted to the highest place, the right hand of God, crowned for all to see with glory and honor as a result of that finished work. Oh, to be sure. We don't see His crowning in all of its fullness yet, but make no mistake about it, we will. We will. Everyone will. Can't help but think of Philippians 2. Again, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Do you see there? He already existed as God before the incarnation. It was, something, it was not something he needed to grasp or hold on to. He already had it, but he emptied himself, again, not of his deity, but the visible expression of the glory of his deity, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Incredible. Being made for a little while lower than the angels. He wasn't he didn't even take on the form of an angel which is above us for the time. He took on the form of you and me. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Can you even fathom the depth of that humiliation? To be made like the creature, like a man, lower than the angels that he created his very servants. Oh yes, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, not just any death, even death on a cross. Do you see? 
He endured the suffering of death, the worst imaginable death on a cross. For this reason, Paul agrees with the author of Hebrews. Because of his finished work on the cross and through his resurrection, God exalted him highly, crowned him with glory and honor at his right hand and bestowed on him a name which is above every name so that Genesis 1 will be fulfilled. You see? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will be subjected. Of those who are in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, the subjection of all things will ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why? Why did Jesus do this? So that, Hebrews 2 says, so that by the grace of God, this was an act of God's glorious grace on our behalf, so that he might taste death for everyone. Uh, Now, this Hebrew idea of tasting is not like when we taste something, we might sample something. No, he tasted it, he experienced it, is the idea for everyone. Why everyone? Because everyone failed. From the first Adam through all humanity to the present day, we all have the same problem, namely sin. But the solution offered by God is the very work of His Son through His suffering, death, and glorious resurrection. Do do, do you see? This is an unbelievable text. We will see next week how His death and only His death could accomplish our redemption. There is no one else who could have done it. He was it. Which appropriately then brings us to communion. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this glorious truth. Bad news is we blew it. From Adam, their first two boys they had, one murdered the other, and it just got worse. And it's continued to get worse and worse to the present day where that by the push of a button we could annihilate the planet. We've made a mess of your glorious creation, and yet you're not done. You're not done with us. You're not done with humanity in whose in your image in which we were created. You loved us despite our rebellion. And Jesus, you came in our form, taking on human flesh, humiliating yourself, yourself lower than angels so that you might taste death for us. This is an incredible truth. May it never grow old. In Christ's name, amen.